6,200 times people have gone to our site and listened to one of our lessons. 6,200 times since January. So keep praying about that um, as the Lord continues to bless that and use that, okay? All right, we are going to finish up our little mini-series today called Sexuality, Marriage, and the Bible. Talked about a lot of things. Uh, This was spawned primarily because of some questions that were asked. Uh, And one of the questions that was asked was, people in the Bible had more than one, men in the Bible had more than one wife, why can't I have more than one wife? Well, the questions are anonymous, but I know two things about that person. Number one, it was a male. And number two, they've never been married before. Okay? The other question was, people in, men in the Bible had wives and concubines. How come we can't? Same things I know about that person. So today, we're going to talk about polygamy. What is it? Should a Christian do it? Is it okay? I mean, does, does God say you shouldn't do it? Does God say it's okay? I will tell you this. Nowhere in the Bible does God directly say, Thou shalt not have more than one wife. There is nowhere in the Bible where God says that. So, as a Christian, how do we approach this? How do we deal with this? And let me tell you the greatest value of this. First of all, I don't really think that there are a large majority of us in this room that are seriously considering being a polygamist. Okay? I just, now, we may have a few out there. I don't know. But I, I don't think that's really the issue. I think the main benefit for us in approaching a topic like this is how do we as Christians find out from the Bible what God's opinion is on things that He does not directly tell us the answer to. How do we do that? Well, that's kind of what we're going to do today. So this will help us learn that as much as anything, all right? Look at Genesis chapter 2, and let's start here with verse number 18. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, let's skip down to the last phrase in verse 20. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So, the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. And then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Now, this is where God records for us his instituting marriage. A man, a woman coming together to be one unit, one flesh. Okay? I want you to understand and see a couple of things here because they're important. Number one, in the beginning when God originally created marriage, what did it look like? Well, this is what it looked like. Adam, Eve, together, physical, naked, not ashamed, it's all good. That's how God intended it. It wasn't Adam and Eve and her 14 cousins. It wasn't Eve and Adam and his 12 cousins. It was Adam and Eve 
together in a physical unity and a spiritual unity that was ordained and blessed by God. That's the way God intended it. Now, in Genesis chapter 2, when Adam and Eve were created and brought together, was there sin in the world at this time? Yes or no? No. Everything was still as God had originally created it without sin. Did sin eventually come? Sure it did. And so things became second best. If God had His way, how would things have stayed without sin? That's how God originally created it. That was God's original intention. That was God's best for man, to remain that way. But man chose to sin. So we threw a monkey wrench into everything. So now we have to deal with things that may not be God's best, but we still have to learn how to deal with them and make the best of what God has provided for us. Okay. So first of all, it's very important that we understand that principle about the Bible because that principle helps us to understand just because something is in the Bible doesn't mean it's okay. And just because God allows things to happen, it doesn't mean that that's what He originally wanted to happen. He just allows it for His own purposes. Okay? So, let's start with this. Number one, what is polygamy? When we talk about this, and this is all in your notes, by the way, but let's define it real quick. Alright? Here's Webster's Dictionary's definition of polygamy. Marriage in which a spouse of either sex may have more than one mate at the same time. In On the website, usmarriagelaws.com, by the way, great resource if you want to go there. Um, it describes and gives in a lot of detail the United States laws surrounding marriage. Okay, On their website, here's how they define polygamy. The condition or practice of having more than one spouse at one time. The actual crime is called bigamy, which some people, they, they differentiate between bigamy and polygamy by saying bigamy is, is two, polygamy is more than two. Well, that, that's actually incorrect by the definition. Bigamy is actually the legal crime that is committed if you are a polygamist. You, you have, polygamy is more than one spouse, so is two more than one? Sure. So that is polygamy. So what is bigamy? Here, here's the definition from usmarriagelaws.com. It is the crime of marrying during the continuance of a lawful marriage. Here's a fact. All 50 states have statutes against bigamy. These are marriage licensed uh, or multiple licensed marriages. All 50 states have laws against this. As a matter of fact, in the South Carolina Code of Laws, Title 20, entitled Domestic Relations, I've actually printed it. Let me read you what um, Section 20-1-80 of the South Carolina Law Code says about this issue. Bigamous marriages shall be void. All marriages contracted while either of the parties has a former wife or husband living shall be void. But this section shall not extend to a person whose husband or wife shall be absent for the space of five years 
the one not knowing the other to be living during that time, not to any person who shall be divorced or whose first marriage shall be declared void by the sentence of a competent court. Now you say, Bill, why would you read us that? Well, you're going to see when we get down to the last part of our lesson, which is really the meat of the lesson, as to why should a Christian not do this. The very first reason is that according to Romans 13, we are commanded by God to obey the laws of our land. And bigamy, or being a polygamist, is against the law. Is against the laws of our land. So if for no other reason, why should a Christian not do this? Because it's against the law. Okay? So I want you to see that. All right? So that's what it is. Number two, are there Bible examples of people that did it? There sure are, and there are some pretty good people. Take your Bible, turn to Genesis chapter 4. Let me show you the first recorded incidence of polygamy. Genesis chapter 4, verse number 19. A man by the name of Lamech. The Bible says Lamech married two women. One named Adah and the other Zilhah. So here's the first recorded incident of bigamy. A man by the name of Lamech married two women. There are several other examples. Abraham in Genesis chapter 16 verses 1 through 6. And also Genesis chapter 25 verses 1 through 4. Abraham had more than one wife. Now, who was Abraham? The father of the Jewish nation. Abraham was called the friend of God. Abraham was a God-fearing man. But Abraham was a polygamist. He had more than one wife. Give you another example. David. Now, David was called a man after God's own heart. But David had more than one wife. In 2 Samuel chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, the Bible lists for us several of David's children and their mothers. And they're all different. Then you have 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse number 8. You remember the story of when Nathan came to David to confront him about his sin of adultery with Bathsheba? One of the things that Nathan did in verse number 8 was he said this, David, has not God given you everything? He's made you the king over Israel. He's given you victories. He's given you wealth. He has given you your master's wives to be your wives, plural. And then Nathan says this, and if this were not enough, God would have given you more if that were needed. Now the insinuation is, God would have given him more power, more authority, more wealth, more wives. So it appears that the Bible is saying that God would have given David more wives as necessary. However, the principle Nathan's trying to get across here is this. God has given you everything. Why did you think you had to go take somebody else's property? Another man's wife. That's the idea. But the fact is, David had more than one. So we're, we're dealing with an issue that God allowed to happen in a man that was called a man after God's own heart. So we're, we're creating an apparent issue here. You know, if David can do it, why can't I do it? Um, the next one, now your notes say Saul, that should be Solomon. 
Um, my secretary must have typed it wrong. His name is Bill Crockett. But anyway, it's not Saul, it's Solomon. Okay? I'm, I'm trying to get a new secretary, but he just won't leave. Um, Solomon, in 1 Kings chapter 11, in verse number 3, this is probably the most common incident of polygamy. Now, <clears throat> try and grasp this. The Bible says Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. I will tell you that I know that the Bible says Solomon was the wisest man that ever lived. This seriously makes me question that. 700 wives and 300 concubines. By the way, side light, a concubine was not a mistress on the side. A concubine was a woman in a marriage relationship. Here's the difference, I believe. In the passage, the Bible says he had 700 wives of pure descent, meaning they were Israelite, God-approved people. The difference being God had told him, do not marry women from the heathen nations around you, the Ites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites. Yet he did. And you'll read, if you read that passage in 1 Kings 11, that's what caused Solomon's eventual downfall. Were the women in his life who did not worship his God, but worship false gods. And the Bible says they turned his heart to follow their false gods. So, please understand, Solomon didn't follow these false gods because he had a whole bunch of women. He followed them because he married the wrong kind. The 300 concubines were known as wives of a lesser position. Wives nonetheless, not mistresses, they were legally as wives, but they were not probably not from Jewish descent, which is why they were of lesser standing in the household, okay? But now, now gather this. The guy had a thousand wives. I mean, what did he do on birthdays? I mean, imagine that. How do you do this, all right? In a minute, we're going to talk about why this may have been allowed by God, and, and it'll start to make a little more sense. The reason that seems crazy to you and me is because we're trying to put that model in our world today, when you begin to understand a little bit about their world at that time, it makes a little more sense as to how that could actually happen. And we're going to talk about that in just a second. One more thing about Bible examples. Just once again, there is no place in the Bible where God directly forbids bigamy or polygamy. There's no place where God says, thou shalt not do this. Okay? So we need to understand it. All right, let's go on to number three. So we know what it is. We've seen that there are... Godly people and wise people in the Bible that practiced it. So, number three, why was it allowed? Why did God allow this to happen? Okay, let me give you two things. Number one, the clear answer is the Bible doesn't specifically tell us why it was allowed. So, where God speaks, we speak. Where God does not speak, we cannot speak. Now, I can tell you what I think, and I can tell you what my opinion is. But the truth is, there's only one opinion in life that really matters, and that's God's. So, my opinion is just as good as yours. So, 
I, I'm not going to tell you what my opinion is, okay? The truth is, God doesn't in the Bible specifically tell us why He let this happen. So that is the honest answer. We don't know why, okay? That, however, is not going to keep us from knowing what you and I as Christians ought to do today. You'll see that in just a minute, all right? So, since we don't know specifically why, what are some of the possibilities? Well, let's look at these, and this may at least help us to have a better understanding of how this could have possibly happened in the Old Testament. But, number one, you don't see it at all in the New Testament, and you certainly don't see it much today. So, this may help us to understand why the change came about over time, okay? Let me give you just a few things to consider. Number one, the ratio of men to women. What was it? There was a whole lot more women than there was men. A whole lot more, okay? So, that, that's one reason back then. Number two, war was extremely brutal, resulting in not only less women, but less men. So, if there's already more women than men, and these men go to war and they get killed, then there's even less of them. Now, there were at times, remember some of the stories where they would invade a, a community or a village or a town, and they would kill all the women and all the children. So women were dying too, but not at the rate at which these men were dying. Okay? Um, a third possibility, the patriarchal society in which they live. The Jews often refer to them as the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are commonly called the what of the Jewish nation? The patriarchs. They are the fathers of the Jewish nation. Now, what that meant was in a patriarchal society, the man was the stability. Which, by the way, is where we get the teaching in the New Testament that the man is to be the head of the home, but he is to care for his wife. The Bible says that men are to dwell with their wives according to knowledge, giving honor unto them as unto the weaker vessel. It doesn't mean the lesser. It means weaker. What does that mean? God intended for the man to provide the stability. That's how God intended it. That's how it was created. He created Adam and then Eve. He created the patriarchs, and from them came the Jewish nation. Now, this is very important when we start to investigate why this may have happened in the Old Testament. Because now you've got fewer men than you do women, but yet the man is supposed to provide stability, protection for the women. Okay? That was the patriarchal society. Let me read you um, some research that I found off of a website. That, that It's a biblical website that deals with these kind of things. And let me read you what they said. Um, uh, let's see here. Due to patriarchal societies, it was nearly impossible for an unmarried woman to provide for herself, partially because everything was owned by a family and was possessed by the patriarch. So let's say that you were a woman and you were born into this family, but the father died, the sons all died, or there were no sons. And the daughters married off into other families. Now, you don't have a family. You don't own anything. Because when all the men died, the women didn't inherit it. The men who married into the family, if there were no men in the family, they took over. Because the men, the patriarchs, governed everything. Okay? So if you were an unmarried woman in this time, it was virtually impossible for you to provide for yourself. There was nothing for you to do to earn money or to make a living. Um, it goes on to say 
Women were often uneducated and untrained because they didn't have to be. They were taken care of. Women relied on their fathers, brothers, and husbands for provision and protection. Unmarried women were often subjected to prostitution and slavery. And the difference between the number of women and men would have left many, many women in an undesirable situation. So because of that, many of the men would take on more than one wife, not because they had this crazy sex drive that had to be satisfied by more than one woman, but literally in a patriarchal, loving, duty sense that we need to take care of these people. These ladies don't have anyone to take care of them. I will bring them into my home and I will take care of them. doesn't necessarily mean that the guy had children by all of them. It doesn't even necessarily mean that he had marital relations physically with all of them. He brought them in to take care of them. Now, in that setting, 700 wives and 300 concubines makes perfect sense. Not only was he wise, he was also the wealthiest man in the world at that time. He could afford to take care of all of these ladies. You and I, when we think about that today, we think, well, number one, if that were the case today, even when I mentioned the idea or the concept that the man was the one who owned everything and the women were uneducated and unlearned, because of the propagation of today's philosophy, most people that even hear those terms immediately go to mentally a politically not correct statement. We're not talking about politics. We're talking about the Bible. We're talking about God taking care of His people. This was You can't fit this scenario in our scenario today. It doesn't work. But in this particular time, there was possibly a very legitimate reason why Solomon married and brought into his household all of these ladies to take care of them. The problem was probably 300 of them he was told by God not to do that with because of their religious affiliation with false gods. Okay? So, for you and I, we, we think about 700 wives, 300 concubines. What does he do on birthdays? How, how in the world do you physically get to all of those women? We didn't. Those are things we think about. Those are not things that were considerations then. That's probably not why he did that. He was doing it to take care of them, okay? So, do we know for sure that's why? No, we don't. The Bible doesn't tell us. But knowing history and knowing culture, more than likely, that's why it happened, okay? And then one more thing, and this is probably the most obvious, was the rapid expansion of the human race. Right after God destroyed the world with a flood, God told Noah in Genesis chapter 9 and verse 7 that you're to be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth rapidly. Well, if there was only Adam and Eve, and they started, and then Lamech married too, eventually, in order to repopulate the earth, they were going to have to do it some other way besides one man with one woman with one child at a time, when there were not enough men to go around. So that, again, is a possibility as to why in the Old Testament, especially the early part of the Old Testament, 
you see this practice going on and God allowing it, and today you don't see it, and you don't see it in the New Testament. Okay? So, is that why? I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us why. These are logical possibilities. So that at least we know it was not some horrible heathenistic practice that was abusive of women. Okay? Um, that was the culture. All right. Now, all that being said, is polygamy right for a Christian today? You and I don't live in Abraham or Solomon's house. We, we live today. So how does a Christian approach this today? Let me give you five basic principles, and then we will be done. Okay? Five principles, none of which say specifically you shouldn't do it, but all five of them, if you put them together, we understand the mind of God and we see what God's position is. Okay? Number one, the legal aspect. Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7, teaches us that we are to obey the laws that God has instituted. Does God ever allow bad people to be put into places of authority? Now, as we answer that, number one, is God in control of everything? Of course He is. Remember our two basic premises. God loves us no matter what, and He's in control of everything. So, there is no authority, according to Romans 13, that exists that God did not allow. None. The Hitlers, all the rest of them. I mean, we don't understand why, but God allowed it. Okay? Question, back to Bible times. Did God allow the Caesars to be placed into authority in Rome? Sure they did. Were they God-fearing men? I don't think so. As a matter of fact, when Jesus was born, it was that influence and the Jewish authorities that tried to kill the babies so they could get him before he ever got started. It was Caesar who was a part of the trial process that eventually got Jesus crucified. It was Caesar and many of them that were involved in the martyrdom of the disciples. So, just because somebody has been allowed by God to be put in a place of authority, it doesn't mean they're all God-fearing people. God allows it for His own purpose, and we don't always know what that is. Okay? So, whether we agree with it or not, if God's allowed Him to be there, unless the law directly commands me to disobey a clear and direct command of God, you cannot become a Christian. It's the law. By the way, in the first century and in many countries today, not as many as it used to be, but that is a law. You cannot practice Christianity. Well, what do you do? Well, I guess I won't be a Christian. I'll just die and spend eternity without God. But you don't do that. In that situation, I'm going to disobey the law because it tells me I have to disobey a direct command from God. However, there are a lot of Situations where Christians use the excuse that the law is telling me to do something that as a believer that I have been told I am supposed to do when it's really not direct. It's more of an opinion than it is God's direct command. So you've got to be careful. Okay. So first of all, why should a Christian not be involved in polygamy? Because it's against the law. And God tells me to obey the law. Number two. Because of the principle of God's best. God's best. 
Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. Paul is praying, and he says, I'm praying that you will grow in wisdom, knowledge, and in depth of insight so that you can discern what is best in your life. One of the things as, as human beings that we are very, very susceptible to is settling for second best in our life in a lot of ways. Normally, it's because we're just impatient. I mean, we just, we just are about something. You ever bought something? A car, and then a week later realized you really made a big mistake. I mean, now remember when you were there, the car was just what you were looking for. It's exactly what you wanted, and of course that salesman did everything he could to talk you out of it. You're probably going to die in a week, so if you don't get it today, you'll never get to enjoy it. We have fourteen thousand people looking at the same car. I have twenty offers on the table right now. If you don't get it right now, then you're never going to be able to enjoy this wonderful vehicle that you have waited for all of your life. Oh, really? And so what do we do? Well, we put down that $5 down payment and took on a $450 payment for the next seven years at 12% interest, which we cannot afford. But I got what I wanted. A week later, you found the same car, newer, less mileage, that your neighbor is going to finance for you at no percent interest. Pay what you can. Oh, no. I don't think I got the best deal. That's a radical example of a very common mistake that believers make. God has a best for our life. And many times because of our impatience, we want to grab whatever is immediate and not wait for God's best. Sometime do a study, get your concordance, and go through your Bible and look at all the verses where God talks to us about waiting on the Lord. There are hundreds of them. We're not very good at that. God's best. I'm giving you some other verses here. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 2. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12. Titus chapter 1 and verse 6. You know what these are? These are the passages where God is describing the characteristics of a pastor and a deacon. And it says they are to be the husband of one wife. Somebody says, but I'm not going to be a pastor. And I don't want to be a deacon. Well, why do you think God said those people in leadership ought to be like this? Because that's what's best. You're supposed to be the example. So that's what's best. Well, if that's what's best, whether I'm a pastor or a deacon or not, shouldn't I try to live the same way? I mean, does it mean that it's not good for me? Of course not. Okay. So there's the principle of God's best. Is it God's best for me to have more than one wife? No. That's clear in the Scripture. Number three, God's original intention. We looked at this. This principle. Genesis 2, verses 18 through 25, we saw at the beginning what God's original intention was. Adam, Eve, together, godly, um, physically, spiritually, mentally, every way with no sin, no problem. That's the way it's supposed to be. In Matthew chapter 19, Jesus is teaching about divorce. And in verse number 8, here's what he says. Moses, speaking of the Jewish people, allowed you to have a writing of divorcement. 
Jesus is saying, God allowed you to do that. But, from the beginning, it's not what God intended. There are a lot of things that God allows, but from the beginning, it's not what He intended. So then we get to that principle of God's original intention. Is it what God wants me to do, or am I settling for second best because God's allowing me to do it? You know what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6? All things are permissible, but all things are not beneficial. Yeah, but I have a right to do what I want to do. Sure we do. I mean, you've got a right to run out here and jump in front of a semi on I-26 if you want to. I mean, that's your right. You can do it. You have the right to stick a shotgun in your mouth and pull the trigger if you want to. That's your right. You're a human being. You can do what you want to do. But are either of those things beneficial for your life? I don't think so. So, why do we take that principle in our spiritual life and use it as an excuse to do whatever we want to do? We shouldn't. What was God's original intention? How did God intend for me to live as a believer? That's what's best for me. Number four, the teaching on the marriage relationship. In Ephesians 5, verses 22 through 33, and Colossians 3, verses 18 and 19, the Bible teaches about the husband and the wife and the children and how the family fits together. And what analogy does he use? The husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, and he's the Savior of the body. He uses the analogy of Christ and His church. Okay, question. How many bodies, how many churches, how many brides does Christ have? One or multiple? And I'm not talking about local assemblies. I'm talking about the church, believers. You don't got one. That's it. And that's the analogy He used. So even the teaching about the marriage relationship in the New Testament teaches us that God intended for one man and one woman to be together just like Christ and His church. And then finally, the last thing, part of the reason, another reason a Christian shouldn't do it is because of the issues it creates in the marriage relationship. Now we're going to close with this. So turn back real quick to Genesis chapter 16 because I want you to see this and then we'll be done. I know we're out of time. Genesis 16, verse number 1. Now Sarah, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. So she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abraham agreed to what Sarah said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan ten years, Sarah, his wife, took her Egyptian maidservant, Hagar, gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar, and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, this is Hagar. Now, we've got bigamy going on here, polygamy. Abraham's married to Sarah. Sarah said, take my, my maidservant, Hagar, marry her. So they did, and she's now pregnant with a child. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. That's Sarah. Here we go. Now Abraham's got two of them. And boy, they get along great. Sarah said do this. So he did. Now she's pregnant. Hagar is saying, nah, 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 nah. And she begins to despise Sarah. Well, notice what happens. Look at verse 5. Oh, my goodness. 
Then Sarah said to Abram, You are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my servant in your arms, and now that she knows she's pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between me and you. You know what Sarah did? Abraham, it's your fault that she doesn't like me anymore. I can just see Abraham. What did I do? You're the one that told me to do this. You gave her to me. You even wanted her to get pregnant so you could have a family. Why are you blaming me? I'm just trying to make you happy. I'm just trying to do what you want me to do. It's your fault. Now, notice what else happened. Look at the next verse, verse 6. Abraham says, your servant is in your hands. Abraham said, do with her whatever you think is best. She's your, do whatever you want to with her. Let's just fix this. She's your, do whatever you want to. Notice the next phrase. Then Sarah mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. Now, I can certainly see from this story that polygamy is definitely the way to go. I mean, if you want God's best for your life, by all means, guys, have a dozen of them. You see what God's saying? Whenever we say, yeah, but God didn't say I couldn't do it. I'm going to do it because I want to. And we violate biblical principles to get what we want. Whenever it's not what God originally intended and it's not God's best, we're the ones that suffer. So should a Christian be involved in polygamy? Absolutely not. Does he specifically say don't do it? No. But there are five clear biblical principles and examples that teach us that's not God's best for our life. Okay? So, a lot of things in the Bible, God doesn't say, thou shalt not. It would be a whole lot easier in life if he did, wouldn't it? But he doesn't. That's why it's so important that we know the Scripture, all of it. We spend time in it every day, and we let it permeate our lives so that our reactions become over time naturally bent towards God's principles in our life so that we protect ourselves from situations God never intended us to be in. Next week, we'll do the introduction to our series for the fourth quarter entitled Spiritual Disciplines and Why They're Important. Paul said, when I run a race, I run it to win. And he's talking about his spiritual race. So we're going to spend the next three months talking about the everyday things you and I as believers need to discipline ourselves to do to make sure that at the end of our life, we can say like Paul, I fought a good fight, I finished my course, I kept the faith, I won my race. What do we do to make sure that happens? We'll start that next week. Father, thank you again for your word. Help us to love it, to love its principles, and to want to live our lives by it. We know it's difficult, and we need your help every day. Thank you for your patience. Give us a great week. In Jesus' name, amen. See you, everybody.